Well, I grew up in uh, what they call the Rogers Park uh, area, the north side of Chicago, uh, a few blocks from Lake Michigan. So uh, I lived in an area where I was a block, two blocks from my grammar school and a block from my high school. So for my first eight years, I or nine years with kindergarten, I went to walk to my grammar school and had a lot of friends. And we went through many years and then we moved to the high school next door. And I was there for another two years with the same friends. And then my family, my mother and dad, decided to build a small home in Evanston, Illinois. And uh, I think it was the end of my sophomore year, they moved. And I spent my next two years at school called Evanston Township High School in Evanston, Illinois, which is really one of the great high schools in the Midwest. Uh, along with New Trier, those are the two great you know, public high schools in the, in the area. And I was very fortunate. It was really an academically, uh, um, uh, what's the word, academically challenging school. And in fact, I had some teachers there that were equal to many college professors, motivated, excited, really focused on the students. And they really prepared me to go to college. I, I can't imagine my college career without my two years at Evanston Township High School. Chicago public schools were much better at that time than they are now, but they weren't anywhere near with Evanston Township High School. Would you say you were a pretty outgoing kid? Like, did you make friends easily? Because I can imagine, you know, jumping around high school to high school, sometimes it's hard in the, at that age to have to like make new friends and kind of get acclimated and meet new people. Were you someone that, that came easy to, or were you more like a reserve? No, kind of I was, I was pretty shy kid and I was, you know, um, I was, you know, not good at sports. I had a, uh, a back condition even from a young age, which I really couldn't be very athletic, so I never could catch up. I think I was about 12 or 13, and I had to have a body cast put on for about uh, three months during the summer or something. And from then on, I was never energetic enough to be a good athlete. And so I, I, my mother was a school teacher, and I loved reading. And early on, she took me to public libraries. And as I grew older, I'd go to the libraries myself and get books I enjoyed about explorers and about American frontiersmen and Navy heroes. I read all the Captain Hornblower stories and David Farragut and you know John Paul Jones and all the leaders and heroes of the early days. Um, and I was always, it gave me a very adventurous um, uh, personality, I think, underneath a relatively shy young man. I, I had a very bad speech in, uh, impediment until I was like, I don't know, sophomore in high school. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't print, uh, I, I couldn't uh, uh, differentiate between my R's and my L's. And my mother finally, she took me to several different clinics. She finally found a doctor and a voice in Evanston who you know, taught me how to speak correctly. But I would say if I was talking to a friend named Larry, I would say, Rare, mm -hmm. I had a very lazy tongue. And yeah. so kids, kids would laugh at me, and I was kind of embarrassed and shy in class. So I didn't want to speak up too much because I, I had a funny, funny um, way of talking. It's interesting, Gordon, how a lot of the letters in Crate and Barrel are R's and L's. So right. <laughs> I guess it I guess it made its way to your business eventually, huh? Right. But it was it was ended up to be a you know, 
something I had to overcome and something that was challenging. And when I graduated um, Evanston Township High School, I decided to um, apply to uh, different schools. In those days, you didn't have a common app. So you had to you know, do a nice application of schools. And I, I applied to Northwestern, which is an also in Evanston, applied to the Wharton School of Business uh, in uh, Philadelphia, and I applied to Harvard. And I got didn't get accepted at Northwestern. Um, we don't know why, but somehow I had pretty good grades, but maybe they didn't want too many local kids on the campus. So I had a choice between Harvard and Penn. And Harvard, in your freshman year, you had to take language. And I had taken two years of Spanish at Evanston Township and really disliked languages. I wasn't very good at English grammar, any of that. So I, I decided I hate languages. So I decided to go to the Wharton School of Business, which was and still is rated as one of the better business schools. So I went out to Philadelphia. I remember with a trunk, got off at the 32nd Street Station, went to uh, the, the campus and um, it was very different then. It was much smaller uh, physical campus than Penn is today. Um, it was a kind of dingy neighborhood. Um, I really didn't enjoy it. I, I didn't. I didn't have a very interesting roommate. I didn't make very many friends. Um, and my first year, I found the business school kind of boring and not very motivating. I did well, very well in my grades and classes and. After nine months there, I decided to apply to Northwestern as a transfer student, and I got in. Yeah. And I came back to Northwestern in my soft, for my sophomore, junior, and senior years. And now for 35 years, I've been a trustee there and very involved, chairing several committees, one of them, Properties and Buildings Committee. And mm-hmm. I've been very involved in the architecture and design and redevelopment of a good part of the campus, both in Evanston and and in uh, Chicago. What was what was your motivation for studying business at the time? Like, what did you think you would do after well, college? I, I had an uncle who was, one uncle of all my uncles was a very successful businessman. And my dad wasn't, he ran a small restaurant and I was very interested in the restaurant business, but he was an old fashioned, you know, businessman. He had, he had immigrated from Palestine, met my mother in New York. And um, when she was on a visit there and he moved to Chicago, but Eventually, he adopted a small restaurant that uh, my mother's oldest brother was retiring from. And and um, so it was a small family restaurant. And guess who worked on busy days and weekends? And it was, I was taught the restaurant business. Mm-hmm. And I did every job from being a busboy to being a waiter to being a, uh, a steam table cook to being at the salad bar and many, many, many times washing dishes. And being in very involved, I ran a small catering business, and I, I did a lot of the catering work as a young man. Mm-hmm. And um, um, I thought I wanted to go. I was very motivated. I loved the restaurant business, as it turned out. And I decided I was going to go into restaurant business when I graduated college. But at Northwestern, in my sophomore, junior, and senior years, I finished. I was actually in the what was then called the School of Commerce, the business school. It's now called the Kellogg School. But um, I, I uh, found business classes kind of boring, and I love cl- you know classes in history and political science and um, um, European studies, and I got very fascinated by you know the history and the world and uh, governments and uh, travel, and so you know I was always very motivated to explore 
And like I said, early, from early on, I wanted to be an explorer like Daniel Boone or some mm -hmm. of them. <laughs> and I'm thinking back. I'm just, I haven't talked about this for ages, but then I think about early motivation. That was maybe some of it. So when um, I, I graduated my senior year, I um, was graduating, and it was a friend of mine who was still at the University of Illinois, but we decided that maybe both of us go to Europe for two months and travel throughout Europe, rent a car, drive around France and Italy, and uh, maybe take a, we took a flight over to Israel. We came back. We went up through Bologna, Venice, then into Austria, uh, Munich, Frankfurt, ended up in Amsterdam, and then went flew over to Copenhagen, and then back to Great Britain, London, and then eventually home over about two months. And we had a little Ducheveau, a little Renault that we rented, dropped it off in Amsterdam. And, but ironically, you know, we were visiting, you know, stores that sold pots and pans, and every we'd eat for two dollars a day, and then we'd go to a fancy French restaurant or an interesting mm -hmm. Italian restaurant. Europe was very cheap in those days. This was 1960, and you could live on five, six, seven, ten dollars a day pretty well. Gordon, I'm curious, during this trip, what did you learn most about yourself? Well, my great interest was about the food industry and the interest in, in uh, serving and dining. Remember, I, I thought I was going to you know, be a, a restaurateur for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I, I love serving customers. And, you know, restaurant business is fun because a customer comes in, they're kind of tired, kind of hungry, not in a great mood. And, if you serve them right and you serve great food or wine, or, you know, they, you sit them down and at the end of an hour and a half, two hours, they walk out there a happy person. And I love making people happy. It was kind of an in, inbred thing, I guess. My dad was great at that. And um, so it, that was sort of the beginning. And um, I was fascinated by Europe. And while in Copenhagen, we, we lived in the new SAS hotel, I remember. I don't know how we afforded it, but. It was near the end of the trip, and we have a few dollars left, I guess. And a block away was a, 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 a store, a big, a big store called Den Permanente. It was a government-run exhibition hall for the arts and crafts of Denmark. And we walked in there, and my mother loved pottery and loved tea and whatever. I saw some little teapots and a big teapot that were made out of brown stoneware uh, by an artist called Herman Taylor. And I bought them from, take them home from my mother. And I still have them on the shelves in our, our home, in the library. And they would be a product if they were in production that I would buy today. They were beautiful. You know, natural stoneware, you know, brown clay that was just beautifully shaped and molded. Sitting to the little teapots and on little tea pedestals, pig trays. Where did I get that? And in fact, probably six months before, my mother... Was, was her health was deteriorating, and my girlfriend at that time, my not wife now, our senior year in college, we wanted to buy our teapot, so we went to Marshall Field and Company, which was the big department store in Chicago, and looked went to their china section, and they had a, about a thirty-yard wall of dinnerwares and accessories along one whole wall, you know, very simply displayed, but and each dinnerware pattern had a teapot. 
and we went up and down the uh, the, the row, and I stopped and I chose a teapot, which was the Artsburg 1382 design. It's roly poly, sort of like an English round uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Betty teapot. And I said she'd love this. It's warm. It's you know well designed. Whatever. I didn't know that that particular design by Artsburg, a German porcelain factory would be in our collections of crate and barrel for 20 years, and we still sell the teapot 60 years later. Mm. And it became the famous. When I retired, they took one of those teapots and plated it in gold for me. <laughs> yeah. What was the the state of the furniture industry or just the home furnishing, home goods industry at that time? Because we always hear about how you know travel has has opened the eyes of so many entrepreneurs who have come back and created incredible businesses from things that they saw overseas. So I'm just curious, you know, at home, what I mean, you mentioned this one store, but was it just like smaller boutique shops here and there that you would well, go through? There was a few contemporary stores in America, Bagnier's in New York. There was the regional uh, uh, Bazaar Francais, which was a very tiny, but absolutely store filled in New York full of Every French cooking utensil or every cooking utensil you can think of, maybe it was a 20-foot wide store and from maybe 80 feet deep. And I remember you almost had to walk narrowly through the aisles, but we found so many good things we couldn't find in Chicago there. And we were just, my wife and I had gotten married. We were in the Caribbean when we, <laughs> we were in the Virgin Islands, which you know was used to be a Danish colony. And near the seaport, there was a Danish store uh, a little Scandinavian store run by this Danish fellow, and we had gotten uh, we had gotten married a couple of weeks prior, and we were on our honeymoon. And this was nineteen sixty one, June of sixty one. And um, <laughs> as we're walking through the store, Carol picks up this stainless steel flatware, turns it over, and says eighteen eight, that made in Denmark. And Carol turns to the merchant and says, "How can you have Danish stainless steel for two ninety five a place setting when Dansk?" You know, Danish flatware is $28.95 a place. And so, so I go to Denmark and I buy from small stores and up from small resources there. Once in a while, there's a salesman that comes around, sells me different European products, and I buy it direct from small factories. Now, that's a very important thing to remember. And um, we ended up uh, seeing some teak boards that we bought, and we ended up buying some, you know, the stainless flatware. And, um, uh, Years, you know, the, uh, then we went on to New York and we saw some wonderful stores there, like, say, Bazaar Francais, the original uh, warehouse store, which was, uh, you know, a dirty, filthy warehouse called the Pottery Barn, where there's stacks of dinnerware on dusty shelves and everything. Not the Pottery Barn you think of today. It was three generations, three different owners since, but four different owners, actually. And the, 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 um, Things that we bought because our, our wedding gifts were, were kind of limited were, were things we personally ch- could choose and they were inexpensive so we could afford it with some of our wedding money. And we came back home and I went and, you know, I had, you know, gone to New York to be in the restaurant business in 1960. I was at the Four Seasons in New York. It just opened a year before. This was a very ultra-luxury restaurant on Park Avenue. And uh, I worked there for about four or five months as a quote-unquote management trainee, but they were paying me 65 bucks a week. And you can't live in Manhattan wow. for 65 days, dollars a week. Couldn't afford to train to get to the suburbs. Anyway, that didn't last. I ran out of money, came back, and went into uh, opened a small real estate office with a friend I knew. 
in, in very near to the old town area where we ended up opening a store eventually. But for a year I did that. And, uh, but when we came back from this trip to the uh, Caribbean and then New York, a lot of our dinnerware and flatware that we bought at these stores came into our small apartment. And we started using it and entertaining friends and living our life. And, you know, Carol was teaching a school and I was, you know, in the real estate business. But we were both a little bit bored. <laughs> Out uh, February of 62, one night I was washing some of these dishes. I remember they were Artsburg Seconds, actually, that we had bought in New York. And um, that's a very plain white dinnerware. It's kind of beautiful still today. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, I said, you know, Carol... There got to be other young couples like us with good taste and no money. Why don't we open a store? She turned to me, said, oh, no, come on. I said, no, Carol, let's investigate it. Let's, let's look into it. I'm, I'm not thrilled by real estate. You're not happy with teaching school. We're way too creative and energetic to be doing those things. Gordon, you're at this point 21 or 22, and I assume your wife was around that same age too? We were 21, well, 20, 22. Just turned 22. What what gave you the confidence that you know you could begin and start this store, or you know, did you just not know? Were you just ignorant to the fact that you know you guys can do this, and you're young and energetic, and frankly, don't have much to lose? Well, that was basically it. We had no money. We had about ten thousand dollars that we saved from wedding gifts or little savings from the work we both did. And uh, in fact, we thought we needed 20000 to open a store, and uh, we couldn't raise $10,000. You could have bought half interest in this idea for $10,000. <laughs> and I was turned down by some wealthy people I knew, and what, I did a little real estate work for it. I said, no, no, don't, you know, and my father finally gave us all the cash he had, about seven grand. So we opened the Crate and Barrel with about $17,000 of capital. And what they what didn't those people you were going to for money like about the idea at the time? What were they telling you? Well, the two young kids who had no experience. <laughs> like one guy said to me, Gordon, you're very good. You're very you know creative. I I, let, I was working as a real estate broker, you know, trying trying to bring them land. He was a home builder and a multimillionaire back in '60. And George said to me, Gordon, if you don't do well, I'm not going to be very happy with you. And if you do do well, you're going to be very unhappy to make this deal with me. <laughs> so why don't you try to raise the money from the fa- from family or something else? So that's what I did. And we figured we'll get by with $17,000. And then we were lucky. We, I went to the trade commissioners for Denmark and Sweden and Belgium and France. And in those days, they used to have catalogs of all their manufacturers in these countries. And each of the manufacturers were divided into certain categories like dinnerware, glassware, you know, cookware, whatever. And you can, you know, I worked with trade commissioners here and we decided, okay, let's create a company. I I created something called Euromarket Designs Incorporated. uh, That's the, the parent of the company and a name that sounded like we were an importer. And, and we just wrote letters for their catalogs and price lists. And we started going through these catalogs and ordering by mail, basically, and said, well, ship us, you know, 12 of these and 24 of these and 48 of these. And, you know, 
and we knew nothing. <laughs> nothing. What was your strategy though? I mean, besides, you know, you were, you were, you know, applying your own creative touch to sourcing the inventory. Was it also like well, you were trying to undercut the competition price wise? It was going to be much more I affordable. Mean, the idea was to open a very simple store. We didn't realize how simple it would be. It was just, an, we finally found in August, a, a, an old elevator, a dumb waiter factory that they were building a new facility and, they were going to be out in September or something. They weren't out till about November, but mid-November, and um, um, it was you know they was it was just on this area called Well Street, Old Town. It wasn't really much of a street. There were some antique dealers, a few interesting little restaurants opened, and uh, another couple of gift stores on this two-block stretch of North, Well Street, just south of North Avenue, and. Um, uh, <laughs> The the um, uh, we we decided we could made a deal with the owners of the building, which were the, the owners of the shop. For I'd pay them three fifty a month for for you know three year lease, and so we we had figured out that you know with my dad's accountant that you know if we did a hundred thousand dollars of sales and took out a hundred dollars a week to live on five thousand a year, we could probably end up with a five thousand dollar profit. But, you know, uh, and pay for everything slowly. So we we didn't get into this thing till late. We found a young man who sort of semi-construction oriented guy. And we figured out this when these guys emptied out all their equipment and everything, it was like an old factory. And the walls were all bashed up. There was grease and dirt on everything. And so we figured out the cheapest way of doing it. So we went out and bought crating lumber and just put up vertical strips of crating lumber along the walls to cover up, the, you know, up to about nine feet and above it, we painted. And then we got two big sanders and for three days and nights, we sanded the hell out of the floors, getting down almost to the wood. Uh, we hung just big globe lanterns and this was about a 1700 foot store. It had a basement and the, it had a vacant lot uh, just to the side. And we had a side door and trucks could pull up into that vacant lot, unload crates and, we used to have a tire there, and they take out the tire, drop the wooden crate on the tire, and then we'd roll it onto the gravel and into the store. And so we had all these crates, and we, we off, my wife came out, you know, why don't we put these crates as display fixtures? And we found another guy who sold crates in Chicago. And uh, so we also found a guy who sold wooden barrels. So we started deciding that, okay, the display, we didn't have any plans. This was a month before we opened. So we got these wooden crates that came in from Europe, some big wooden barrels that the British pottery pottery used to sell us sipping. And um, we, my wife said, let's set them up. And we figured out aisles and how to do it. She put burlap on the top of them. And then the merchandise started coming in. And um, we thought people would call us. They'd organize. All of a sudden, a truck would pull up or, or a ship would arrive. And we had to pay for it. And you know, we we didn't know how to price it. We didn't know how to do anything. I mean, not a thing. We didn't know retail from from at all. Gordon, how are you guys marketing? You know, well, even just your existence. We, we we weren't. There was no marketing. <laughs> the time. There was no market. We just opened up on Wall Street, and as it turned out, we opened on December seventh, sixty two. Yeah. After working day and night for about three weeks building this place, but we were, you know, 23 years old. We were uh, both very hardworking, and we had this one guy, and one of my dad's ex-employees was our first employee as a stock guy. So there were three of us, 
And then this guy who was helping us build the store, who ended up working a little part-time on Sundays for us. And we opened the store. We didn't, we didn't know what to call it. About three weeks before we opened with the crates and barrels in the store, not put together yet, but just there, a friend of an acquaintance of ours who had been in the marketing business or was in the marketing business, you know, stopped by and, oh, what are you guys doing? How's it going? Here, you want to open the store? And, and she looked around and said, what are you going to call the store? Carol says, we don't have a name yet. We've come up with all sorts of names and we can't agree. And, um, as it ended up, um, well, <laughs> she looked She looked at Carol and said, why don't you call it the barrel and crate? And Carol came down, I was working in the basement, I'm packing merchandise from crates and, you know, doing some paperwork. And Carol came down and said, oh, this lady, you know, our friend that we met once, a mutual friend, thinks we should call it barrel and crate. And Carol says, but you know what, Gordon, I think it sounds better, crate and barrel. I said, good idea. Let's yeah. do it. Well, <laughs> we had to get just a little hand-painted sign before we opened the store. We had about yep. two, three weeks to go. So that became the name, the Crate and Barrel. And on the side of the building, we had a, a painter paint a barrel. It was about a 20-foot sign, a big barrel, and our name, you know, sort of diagonally across the barrel. And, um, and just the wooden letters across the doorfront, storefront of this uh, space. So we opened on December 7th of 62. They used to call the Christmas Walk in Old Town, where a lot, we had a lot of antique stores and little boutique stores and a few boutique stores. And the people would come down on this weekend and uh, do, you know, everybody was selling Christmas items. And we had a few things that we had bought, but mostly it was just our china and glass and woodenware and flatware and glassware. And, um, and, uh, the, we were open on the 7th of December, 62. And by the end of the month, I came to, I said, Carol, Carol, I can't believe this. We did $8,000 in these, you know, 23 days. I said, eight times 12 is 96. Not having been Jewish. I never knew there was a Christmas gift. thing. I never got a Christmas gift in my life. Yeah. So I thought December was just the prelude to January, February, March, April. <laughs> and January 63 came and we did, $4,000. And then February of 63 was one of the snowiest years I ever could remember. We did $2,000. Now we were really scared, thought we were out. Well, we're going to, this continues. We're going to go out of business. <laughs> yeah. But then a month or two later, the city warmed up, the snow melted. You know, people started coming out for the restaurants and the cute stores. And all of a sudden it became popular to come down to the, the uh, second city, opened the block to the north of us a little block and a half to the north of us. And it became a you know a little better known for a nice place and fun place to go for a hamburger, a, a Spanish restaurant that was there. And there were two or three restaurants and it was sort of an offbeat place. We were a couple blocks from the Gold Coast to the to the west. And a, sort of people didn't before that go to that area. It was They were worried about what it was like. It was more antique district, a few antique stores and so uh, unless you were a kind of explorer, you didn't, you sort of didn't do that. And, uh, but all of a sudden on Fridays, nights, Saturdays, Sundays, it became much more popular. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, by the end, you know, we got better and better month by month. And by the end of the year, we had done about $96,000, not far from where we had to be. Gordon, and, what were, what were customers uh, or even just regular patrons that were walking in what were they saying about Crate and Barrel? Because I know you said earlier that 
you know, being someone who is passionate about the restaurant service industry, you know, putting a smile on people's faces was something that was, you know, a part of you. It's part of your essence. Well, how did that translate to Creighton Barrel and the folks that were walking in there? Well, Carol and I were both very enthusiastic, very knowledgeable about all the products we bought, why we bought them, how we bought them. The, the, this was stoneware. This was a porcelain. It's not earthenware. This is hand-blown glass, not machine-made glass. And we were very good at selling. And um, we just convinced everybody about, you know, the quality, you know, was certainly uh, uh, much better than the prices we were charging. I mean, literally, for the first month or two, we didn't even know how to mark up the product properly. So we're selling a lot of it at cost. But after that, we learned how to, you know, uh, we took a keystone markup. And that was very unusual. And we were probably 20 to 30 to 40% less expensive than Marshall Fields or Carson Peary Scott or Peacocks or the dominant home, you know, tabletop and, you know, cookware stores in the city. It's crazy how they didn't teach you guys how to mark things up in business school, right? We didn't know. We didn't have invoices and some stuff early enough. Yeah, I graduated business school in 2014, and they didn't they didn't teach me that stuff either. So nothing's changed. <laughs> so we 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 just you know learned as we went, and um, like I say, we made a little profit the first year, uh, first month, and a little profit the second year, and we went from a hundred thousand to two hundred thousand to three hundred fifty thousand, and then uh, this this guy who owned the building, this this um, one of the owners uh, who was in the dumb waiter factory business said, you know what, you guys are just lucky with this location. You know, I'm I'm going to, my girlfriend and I would like to open a candy store here and we can make more money than the rent you're paying us. I, but I knew they owned 50 feet of, of vacant, they had some ownership in a vacant lot just 25 feet to the south of us. And I, I believe it or not, during the, the, the summers, a couple summers, I had worked in a law firm where my brother-in-law was, and they did a lot of real estate work. And uh, I was doing research on real estate to find in the, in the late 20s and early 30s, a lot of people went bankrupt or a lot of people had vacant lots in the suburbs that they had been sold, like land in Florida or something, and were told how valuable it would be. And then it was unsaleable for many years, and people forgot about it. They didn't pay their taxes or whatever, and it was a whole business I did this for one summer of searching for heirs, you know, getting majority of the heirs to sign a quick claim deed, filing a quick claim, you know, filing these, these, these deeds, filing a partition suit, making good title to the property. Mm-hmm. And um, the landowners, whoever owned the, the, the equity, these people, had to redeem it within 24 months. You had two years once you were given notice to redeem it. And if you didn't redeem, the guy who bought the back taxes made good title. And the back taxes were often less than the value in the 60s of the property. Well, guess what? These guys had a quick claim interest in this land. They knew possibly of a few of the owners. And I had to go out and find all the other owners. And I made a deal. I said, look, if I, you're going to lose this property. A guy had already bought the taxes and, and was certainly ready to... Um, uh, uh, certainly led you to foreclose. And I said, if I make good title, otherwise you're going to lose the, the property. I know what I'm doing. I'll make good title to this property for you. You'll pay me for all this taxes and everything. I said, but if I do, I want you to uh, put the property down as equity and I'll build a building on it. And uh, I'll have 10 years. 
and we agreed on a rent. And um, <laughs> that's uh, so 1965. That's what happened. We built a new building so he could have his candy store with his girlfriend. And um, we built the first crate and barrel, which had really nice wood walls, beautiful oak flooring, a balcony mezzanine, beautiful wood beams and wood ceilings. And that happened in 1965. And by then, our business had grown to 400,000. The next year went to 500,000, then to, to almost 600,000. And then 1990, no, to, what was it then? Um, 1968. And uh, the uh, uh, Democratic Convention and the rioting in Chicago happened. There was they were burning. The, you know, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. And all of a sudden, you know, the city became a lot scarier place to live and have a store. And you know, a guy had approached me to open a store in the suburbs up in Wilmette called Plaza del Lago. And after that was had, there was I, there was one time there was rioting two blocks or three blocks from. They were burning stores down on Division Street, three blocks from where we were. And um, Carol and I said, you know what? Let's diversify. Let's open a second store. So that's how we got started. We went from one store where I was running it every day, and Carol was there most every day until our son was born in '65. And we opened a we built a store in Wilmette, a north suburb of Chicago. We moved up there, bought a small home, and um, that's how Creighton Girl got to its second store, the rioting in 1967-68. Gordon, were you, and, were you and Carol still going to Europe and directly bringing products back, or were there, were there others doing that work for you at this point? Well, the real trick was we went to Europe, and we walked all the streets in Copenhagen and Paris and Met Potter and, you know, we went to the trade show, the Frankfurt Fair, the Hanover Fair, the Birmingham Fair, and we'd meet vendors. We'd see the product. Our eyes, our, our taste and style was just, you know, fitted what we wanted to sell. And we'd see a booth and we'd walk in and introduce ourselves and, you know, negotiate prices and buy product. That's, you know, they had trade fairs all over Europe and we'd go there and meet vendors, some people. So we met some retailers and they told us of different guys to go visit. And we met the ones that go down to Valerie down in the South of France. And there's a great potter named Gerard Hoffman. It took us, you know, we, at the end of one of the trade fairs or after a trip to Paris, we went down to Valerie and uh, met this guy and he made a beautiful red clayware. It was just beautiful, burnt on the bottom, beautiful, dark red. You never saw anything like it. And we took two days to convince him to sell to us because their experience in most small potteries and glassmakers and everything else in Europe was Americans would come over, place one big order, and they'd never see see them again. We said, no, no, no. We, we understand. We'll place orders and replace orders. And if the product sells, I guarantee you we'll be back here buying again and again. We developed a wonderful potter in Holland called Hermann Zalberg. We had wonderful, we've met wonderful glass factories. We met a guy who could be a Swedish agent. He introduced us to, to uh, wonderful glass factories in southern Sweden, like Hovman Torp and Bjork Schult and Gullitsgruve. And well, there were at that time, there were maybe 20 glass factories in the south of Sweden. I think there's one or two now left, Boda, Costa Boda and Orfors. But in those days, in the, in the 60s, there were, you know, you still had a lot of small potteries and glass factories and they employed 30, 40, 50 people. 
eventually, you know, Europe handmade products in Europe became too expensive. But we we developed these relationships. We met a great friend in Denmark who had a wonderful store in a wholesale business called Torben Orskov. And he gave us a lot of relationship connections that where they bought from. And he introduced us to, to Mary Mecco up in Finland. Um, and he made beautiful products for us and plastics and ceramics. And he made beautiful leather bags in Poland in those days. And uh, it, we just... We just relish these relationships, develop these relationships, and we're still friends with his widow. Yeah, I mean, you know, Gordon, just, I'm curious, where where did so so you know, kind of going back, you were this guy who was very interested in the restaurant business. You went and studied, you know, you got a business degree. You thought you were going to be in hospitality. You ended up doing this, but clearly, you had this creativity or this like taste for you know nice products, like nice aesthetic you know, furniture or home goods or things like this, where did that come from? Was that something that you just always had in you or did you we, have to develop that we, over time? We probably had a little of it, but the fact that I bought a teapot set in, uh, in Denmark in 1960, the fact that I bought a, a beautiful teapot for my mother. Yeah. And, and my sister was very artistic. She became a very good interior decorator. She's four years older. And she became a contemporary interior designer in the North Shore of Chicago. And my mother it was, you know, uh, took us to the Art Institute, introduced us to culture in Chicago a bit. But God only knows, Carol, my, my sister Barbara, and I don't know where we got it. Mm. And we just had an interest and we, you know, looked at all the design and style magazines and you know, uh, we, we looked at architecture. We loved architecture. We loved, you know, contemporary architecture. We loved contemporary furniture. Knoll was the big furniture brand in those days. Florence Knoll was doing some beautiful contemporary things. And, you know, Herman Miller. And we couldn't afford that kind of product. But, yeah. You know, we looked for product that was clean, contemporary. We sold one piece of furniture in those days, a Norwegian table that folded down a teak table. Bought a you know few things, but we weren't in the furniture business till many years later, mm-hmm. and um, so that's sort of how it got started. So it was just building relationships with factories, small factories in Europe, and so we were making glass for maybe eight nine years in Sweden, and it got too expensive. Then we moved a lot of production to uh, Eastern France, and we were doing there for about five six years, and then they were getting too expensive. As wages went up, as the dollar got, you know, the European currencies, the franc, the franc, and the Deutschmark got, you know, went up in value. And then we, you know, found a factory in Poland. We started traveling to Poland to buy Polish hand-blown glass, which was, you know, just they can make it if we worked hard at it. They can make it almost as nice as the French and the Swedes. So we kept, and then we went to Czechoslovakia and bought, you know, early on we were the, for many years. We were the, biggest buyer of hand-blown Polish glassware in America. Gordon, in the mid-80s, Crate and Barrel grew to about 17 locations, and then a decade after, in the mid-90s, you guys were probably closer to 60 locations, um, which obviously meant that things were going well and something was going right, and people actually wanted what you were giving them and buying the products that you guys sold. Beyond, I guess, just those general things that I said, what do you think led to the ultimate success and the obviously now current success of uh, Crate and Barrel? Well, first of all, 
We worked very hard at keeping our stores beautifully designed, the physical buildings or stores. And we worked very hard at visual display and we promoted, we, we trained the original store designers. Carol was very, obviously the first one who was very good at this. And, you know, she worked very hard at training the first one or two designers. And then those guys trained other people. And as we opened the store, we not only had a store manager and an assistant, of course, we always had a store designer. And we used to laugh and we used to say, look, it takes five years to make a store manager neurotic enough to run a crate and barrel. And it takes three years to make a person neurotic enough to be a crate and barrel store designer. And uh, we had very talented, look, we were hiring um, probably a lot of gay men at that time, way before people were employing them. And they were very good with customers, very good with visual display. We, they were just so enjoyable to work with, so so much in love with what our mission was. And, and I, listen, I, I told our people, you know, listen, we're in this as a mission. Hopefully we'll be successful. But our mission was to bring good style, good taste, and good design to American households. And if you believe in this mission, you know, join us. And if you don't believe it, if it's just the job, you know, eventually you're not going to like it and we're not going to like you. So let us know before we let you know <laughs> whether you fit in or not. And we very carefully edited our staff. We very much got leadership that was very motivated and very devoted. And I got to tell you, we, when we ran one store, it was, you know, all perfection. Our second store was still perfection. Our third store, our fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, I mean, you know, we kept training and developing people who loved what we were doing, loved the way we managed the company, loved working for us and their and our subordinate managers. And, you know, we promoted from within. So the only times we ever hired outsiders was when we needed a financial person as an as accountant, yeah. uh, when we needed a, you know, uh, an architect, uh, you know, where we needed special tra specially trained people. But if, you know, if when we got into technology, we had to hire a technology person from outside. But our loyalty to our staff was the same loyalty we got back from our staff. And people worked 20, 30 years for Creighton Bureau, and they still are many people there who we started with years ago or, you know, have been there 20, 30 years. The company's now in its 60th year this year. Yeah, that's um, incredible. As a lead, as the leader of the company, as the company was growing, um, and you were hiring more people and having to manage more people, was that a struggle for you, or did it come naturally to be? No, it it, it came know. naturally, and I was a very good speaker and motivator, and I could, you know, explain to people why we work so hard at this. Retail's hard, the long hours, hard work, often, not often, but once in a while, difficult customers. And it's easy to let a store go. And nobody in our industry kept their stores as pristine, as beautifully displayed as we did. And people just enjoyed coming into the stores. I mean, people say, oh, I just love being here. It's so beautiful and whatever. I just, you know, I get so many good ideas. And slowly but surely, we built up a clientele. Gordon, how was it like, and I guess, you know, until recently, how was it like working with, you know, your wife, right? Your life partner, but also your business partner. Cause a lot of times now you'll see, you know, a boyfriend, girlfriend, or a husband, wife, husband, husband, wife, wife, launching a business and something suffers, right? Either the business suffers or the relationship suffers. How are you able to maintain both at such a successful level? Well, first of all, the first three years from 62 to 65, we worked together 
We had to work together. We worked well. We enjoyed it. Then we had our first child in 65, 57 years ago almost. And Carol stepped back for about a year. And then in 68, we opened our second store and she came back and worked there. And she would always work at Christmas, you know, when the busy season was there. And then we had our second and third children, second and third child. And then she was really, you know, wanted to, you know, be home more and would come in maybe in busy holiday days or something like that. But she wasn't coming back full time. When the kids grew older, 14, 15, and were in high school or something, then she, you know, wanted to come back and get more involved in a business. But we then said, well, wait a minute, we got too many people who are now in leadership who've worked for us for 10 years or eight years. And we're doing a great job. How does the wife come in and... <laughs> And my wife's got strong feelings and a strong way of you know, <laughs> expressing them. And she's terrific. And so we decided that, and she decided, you know what? I'm going to open a great food store, food store, which we don't have here in the North Shore of Chicago. I'm going to open a store that's going to sell wonderful, unique cheeses and wonderful olive oils and wonderful uh, fresh foods, prepared foods. And I'm going to create a a store, and she rented a 2,500-square-foot store in a small town called Glencoe, Illinois, and opened foodstuffs in the early 80s. I think it was mm -hmm. the early 80s. Yeah, maybe 82, 83. And built this great business. We called it Foodstuffs. And um, we had our Tom Shortledge, our, 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 our advertising uh, guy who did our packaging and everything, who was an employee. He was a part-time employee. He was an assistant art director at Young and Rubicam, and he worked part-time at Crate and Barrel. And he really understood what we should look like and our stories that we got to tell in our catalogs and our advertising. And he was an incredible talent. He eventually became a head designer in Chicago, head, um, uh, yeah, head creative guy in Chicago for Young and Rubicam. But his, his whole idea... And our whole idea was everything, the packaging, the name. He, he, he came up with the name Foodstuffs. We kept playing around with different names and wonderful packaging, just like Great and Barrel. But he did our wraparound black and white Helvetica around our bags, around our boxes. He ran, we, he did sketches. Our first ads were just hand sketches with a little story about what we were doing. That went on for two, three, four years. And then, you know, then we started being able to afford a photographer to shoot a picture of a product. But um, the small ads we ran were fun to watch. They were very creative. And they ran in the local magazine. They ran a little bit in the newspaper at Christmas time or whatever. We just went very carefully, very slowly. You know, we did everything ourselves, you know, literally with a few key people. And we had some very creative store designers who took what Carol taught them and his we grew, got better at building fixtures, got better at visual display. We got much better at lighting. We got much better at signage. We Everything that makes a store interesting, we did better than anybody else. Yeah. And people just loved doing it. And and we were we had, like I say, many, many people worked a decade, two decades at Crate and Barrel. That's unheard of in retail. Yeah. And I'm saying they stayed as designers. They stayed as secretaries. They stayed as you know, managers. Mm. So we just, we were fun to work with. We were very fair. We were very open with them. Um, we were just, and they could be very proud of what they were doing. And, you know, if you motivate young people with a good, uh, a good business idea, 
like we were providing good taste to the American public and not very many Americans had sophisticated good taste. So they were happy to have a store that did it for them. Right. Like people did it like Mickey Dexter did with the gap with apparel and whatever, yeah. you know, you, you know, you just put it together. Richard Lieberskin did it with Ann Taylor. And in those days, these were fresh stores and you were competing with department stores, which tried to do everything and didn't do anything really well. Right. Um, so, so listen, and we ran scared for 20 years. It wasn't until 1975 we took the big gamble of opening up our first store on Michigan Avenue across from Water Tower Place. It was on Chestnut, Michigan. And we heard about this place available and we negotiated a rent that was very scary for us. And when we opened that, it ended up being a success. And then the whole city could see us, not on Well Street, but it could see us on Michigan Avenue. And once that store had its first, or two or three of success at that time called that 76 77 we knew we've you know we could take a deep breath but that was our fifth store stores one two three four every store we opened we were worried about our whether the companies could survive yeah and throughout all those years i mean so much changed right like you had this whole you had malls come and like you know you had malls everywhere and department stores and then all, all, all Obviously, in the 90s, uh, late 90s, you know, the internet comes around and e-commerce and you have websites. And right. um, uh, what was, I'm curious what that kind of experience was like for Crate and Barrel at that time. You know, you're 30, 40-year-old company, 40-year-old company almost at the time, you know, and you've dominated sort of this retail experience. And then now this internet is coming along and you're having to, I'm sure, have a well, presence there too. What was that situation like? Well, first we had to get better in the catalog business. We started doing better and better catalogs and develop mm-hmm. fulfillment centers and things like that. And um, <laughs> then in, what was it? 1990, 1997, 90, I had one real big setback in 96, late 96, I had a guy in charge of logistics, and he had a guy in um, uh, technology, and we had to develop a new warehouse fulfillment system, and uh, nine, maybe this was 95 or something, and we developed a whole new picking and uh, uh, pick and pull systems, a new uh, put-away systems and everything else, and, you know, I, did, I wasn't paying much attention, and um, all of a sudden, we installed this new system without testing it at first. And he was assuring me everything would work and nothing worked. We lost total control of our warehouse inventory, what was going on, how to pull stuff. So we literally had a team by then of maybe six or eight merchants with assistants who had all been promoted up from the stores. They saw how to, maybe there was a 10 of them and they knew what the stores needed. And we literally made out orders for each store every week by literally counting by hand, everything that was in the warehouse in each category. So there were 10, 10 buyers, 10 teams of buyers. And literally we had to uh, get by, by, you know, estimating inventory and shipping what we thought each store needed, trying to count the inventory. It took us nine months to get out of that thing. And, and another company I knew, another uh, contemporary furniture store, had happened the same thing. that had gone bankrupt. It scared the hell out of me because I didn't know technology. I didn't no logistics and warehousing. And I realized we were getting bigger. And so I got very, very worried about, you know, having all my eggs, all of our eggs. We were the sole shareholder. Everything we owned was in the company. 
and I got very worried about them. You know, if I could blow the whole thing, and maybe then we were, I don't know, 250 to $300 million company. And um, we had got, I should step back a minute and say, in 19, what year was it? 1971, we got a call from another, an older couple who were merchants in Harvard Square. They owned a, a little store called the Upper Story, and uh, the husband had a stroke, and the wife called me up and said, oh, my God, Harry and I got to sell the business. You know, we like you. We've met you. You come out and see if you want to buy it. We don't know who to sell it to who's going to keep it as a nice store. So I went out there with my one of my store managers. We looked at the store. We looked at their warehouse. They were had a little store, maybe 3,800 square feet, half of which was tabletop, upper end tabletop, and the other half was furniture. And we weren't in the furniture business. It created we had little oak tables, side tables. We had a, f- a flap table. We had maybe four, five, six items in light, what I'd call light furniture. And um, this was a store with sofas and, and chairs and dining tables, and it was a serious furniture store. And, um, you know, we went back and forth that day. And while we were in the lawyer's office, a fire starts in the warehouse or building next to their, their warehouse. And I remember I got in a cab and dashed over there and the fireman had put out the fire with just a little smoke damage. And we went back to the lawyer's office and we were going back and forth, my, myself and one of my managers, one of my old time managers. And should we buy it? Should we not buy it? And she was selling it to me for the inventory. It was very inexpensive. I don't know, $65,000 or $75,000. And finally I decided to buy it. And that, was when the Crate and Barrel bought a store called the Upper Story in Cambridge. Well, the Upper Story got into the furniture, was in the furniture business. And um, we ran the small store. We had a second floor that was there, was empty. We took that over and built a stairway. Eventually, we built into the basement. We went from a 3,600-square-foot store until eventually a slightly bigger store. We got to eight and a half, nine thousand 9,000 square feet. And uh, uh, the person I had first put in charge was a brother-in-law who I adored as a social, you know, brother-in-law. But when he when I got into running the business, he, he operated like a tyrant. Mm-hmm. At first, I asked him to buy the business from us because we had such different operating styles. I mean, I was very much part of the team and working with him. He was much an autocrat. It was getting worse and worse. And eventually, I had asked him to leave, and I bought out this contract with for a year and, and whatever. And then I put uh, one of my uh, founding designers, store designers, who was very talented. This was 79. And uh, I put him in with my, um, uh, with one of our <clears throat> guys who clerical guys in our warehouse. I said, and we sat and talked about conceptually what kind of furniture store it should become <clears throat> and a blend of contemporary with some, uh, maybe some Scandinavian antique things that would add a little warmth to the idea. And so that's how we started. And we were doing about $500,000. And the second year, did a million. It's third year, a million and a half. And eventually, the store by 1987, 88, was doing about $9 million, about $1,000 a square foot in that store. And Harvard's wasn't Harvard Square, it was Putnam Square. It was about a block up from Wiedner Library to Harvard Library. Mm. And um, people were just, you know, loved our taste, loved our style. But what was important was the same familiar, knowledgeable 
friendly staff and we did fun advertising and we, you know, just built that business to be one of the real competitive furniture stores in, in Boston. And for years, though, my staff was trying to convince me that we should, as this success succeeded, that we should bring furniture to Chicago. I said, but our guys are cash. We're, we're casual tabletop and houseware stores. We're not a furniture store. It's different staffing. It's different planning. It's different, you know, manufacturers. Everything's different. And it would change who we were. And we went through a lot of agonizing for four or five years. And finally, we decided to make that decision. And we brought this idea to Chicago. We, 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 we um, opened the first one. We took our, our Plaza de Lago, our second store, took over the whole building. We only part of it and built the, that was the summer of 89. And then in December, we, you know, um, was it 90? Yeah, in September and 90, we opened a store in Michigan Avenue. We built a new building there on Michigan Avenue. We were uh, leaving. We were actually told our lease would be up, and we had to build a new building, and that's when I built this glass and white building on Michigan Avenue. Hmm. And then the year following, we opened in Oak Brook and took over a much bigger space and opened furniture and housewares. And believe it or not, we got very, very good at this putting the two together, the, the gift tabletop housewares kitchen business, along with a serious furniture business, but very contemporary, very nice. But the same spirit, the same idea, clean design, well-made product, uh, mostly furniture was mostly domestic manufacturing, made in New England, made in North Carolina, whatever. Mm. And we built with these two young men doing the buying and training others, we started building the furniture business. And then we had to convert all of our houseware stores, which were eight, nine, ten thousand square feet, to build these bigger home stores, we call them. And these stores were 20, 24,000, 30,000 square feet. Uh, New York would have built it on Madison and 59th, I think, was even close to, with the stock rooms, it was close to 38,000 square feet. So we built this various, and all of a sudden, our our business started really booming and growing. But then in the, I told you about this warehouse, this uh, this uh, computer breakdown and scared the hell out of me because we didn't know if we could survive that. And then I started thinking, you know, do I want to have all my eggs in one basket? And at that time I said, why don't I look around and maybe I can find a financial partner or maybe I should go public or maybe I should do this and, I decided I didn't want to go public because I didn't want to be driven by market analysts telling me how I should run my business and criticizing this and that, whatever. And, you know, then I, you know, should I get private investors? And I look at, I figured out our, our, our biggest weaknesses. We weren't really strong in direct marketing that William Sonoma had almost half their business in catalogs and half their business in stores. And we had five or 6% of our business in catalog and, 95% of our business in retail stores. So I looked, we traveled, I found a wonderful, uh, actually grandson of J.P. Morgan, who was an elderly investment banker, but ran his own little boutique. I hired uh, John Morgan and we traveled the world for a year talking to everybody we could meet who might be a good, uh, a, a good partner. And finally, we ended up uh, connecting with the auto group out of uh, the auto group in Germany in Hamburg, Germany. They were, at that time, they probably still are, the biggest uh, direct marketing 
company in Europe. They had catalogs not only in Germany, three or four brands. They were in Switzerland. They were in, they were in England. They were in France. They were in Eastern Europe. Uh, uh, and they ran these different countries to, you know, with the same technology, but obviously different printed catalogs and whatever. They were, they were by far the biggest catalog company in the world until, you know, uh, until um, uh, Amazon came along. But anyway, there was no Amazon in those days. And we made a wonderful event. We found them to be very affable, very interested. Um, we negotiated a, a fair price, not a real high price, but, uh, you know, we were more interested in the type of partner. And the long term, we kept the, about 32% of the company and sold them 68%. And the relationship worked out terrific. They taught us how to be much better in the catalog business, how to invest in the catalog business, how to you know, due to numbers and statistics, all the things I really never cared about. They taught us everything we had need to know. I taught my people what they needed to know. And we were starting to build a catalog business. And um, then when we, you know, and then we started doing, and when in one day about a year into our partnership, must have been 1999, I remember we had a meeting. They said, you guys should start looking into the internet. I said, what's the internet? They explained it to me. I said, no, come on. No, no, you should look in the internet business. Well, as you Gordon, could, just to interrupt you real quick regarding you know the internet and the internet business that you that you're about to go into. Um, when had it? When had you first started hearing rumblings of the internet, and what was your initial reaction to it? When you know, in connection to your business. Well, that was that was it. The first rumblings was they're saying we're starting to invest in it, and look into it, and build it. You guys should start doing it. And um, and they were they also owned Eddie Bauer at that time, and they were pushing Eddie Bauer to get into mm -hmm. it. And um, so we started looking into it, and I put my son Chris Siegel in charge of it. He was in the company at that time, and and had been in the company for about a decade. And he started taking over the internet, and he developed a website, and he developed the product for it, or chose the product for it. And we started improving our fulfillment center, and we had a very good logistics fulfillment guy working for us and by a, a year later we had our website out and we were in the web business in the internet business and um you know our direct marketing business went let's say we started in 99 by the time i retired in 2008 the internet business was what was it? It was about 15%, 16% of our turnover from about our whole direct marketing catalog and internet was about 15, 16%. That's a pretty high number for 2008. Like even, even today or even up to before the pandemic, e like e-commerce numbers were right around 15, 20% of any retailers, right. uh, average retailers business. So and we were, you guys were way ahead of it. That's what we were in. We were in about the 16%, I think by that time. And so we we're doing pretty well in it. And building fulfillment centers in New Jersey and California, and you know, we have then had three distribution centers that could ship to the you know markets in each region, and um, so we were doing, we were going right along. I could tell you <laughs> that the catalog business during COVID, I mean the internet business during COVID, was about seventy percent of our turnover. Right. And today it's still, I think, 55% of the turnover, 55, right. 
So when I retired in 2008, the crate and barrel was, you know, it's, it's three times bigger now than when I retired. Mm. And if we hadn't had the internet, I don't know how we would have survived COVID. Probably could have just because our parent, you know, it's a big capital base and, you know, you know, committed to the company. But they were terrific partners. They, we'd have two board meetings a year, one in Chicago and one in Hamburg. And um, uh, they were very supportive, never had a fight, never had any big disagreements. The only you know, thing that was sad is that they have a rule in Germany. When you're 60, you've got to retire everybody in their company. Uh, they let us go to let me go to 70. But at 70, I had to step down as CEO. I could stay. I stayed on as a consultant for a number of years, but as couldn't run it. So my number two lady who ran the merchandise and been with me for 35 years, 38 years, she took over Barbara Turf, but she was only four years younger. So four years later, she had to retire. <laughs> so I retired in 2008. She retired in 2012. And then they hired some other people. Put some other people. We didn't do a good job of succession planning. Barbara was, you know, wanted to control too much, and she didn't like competitors coming in. She didn't realize that someday she had to retire. This smart. This lady was smart, charming, wonderful, great merchant. People loved to work for her. Vendors loved to sell to her. It's funny. Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks, and you know, we signed this our store on Michigan Avenue. Uh, Creighton Barrel didn't want to renew the lease of a number of years ago, and and um, we were figuring out who could be a tenant. We were out in Aspen at part of the Aspen Institute. They were having a benefit for Howard Schultz and his wife because of their great charitable giving. Howard Schultz, before he started Starbucks, was selling a Swedish housewares line called Hammerplast. And uh, I knew Howard from those days. And we were at this event in Aspen, and I had my two oldest grandsons with me, and my wife said, uh, as we're at the, they said, when, this, when the speech is over, why don't you go up and introduce Andrew and Jonathan to Howard? Which I said, great idea. And just as I was getting up from the table when the speakers were over and everything, my wife gives me an elbow and she says, mention that Creighton Barrel will be leaving the Michigan Avenue building in two years, year and a half. In those days. And so I went up and I, you know, the crowd cleared eventually and I introduced Howard to my two grandsons. And he, you know, said, oh, it's so great you're here, Gordon, and whatever. Thank God we haven't seen each other in years and whatever. And so just as I finished, I said, Howard, you know, you're building these new big um, roasteries. And um, we hear you're opening in different cities. I said, the Creighton Barrel Building would be great on Michigan Avenue. He looks at me straight in the eye, Gordon, let's make a deal. <laughs> <laughs> It took wow. about another year to make the deal, but I don't know if you've been in Chicago, but this beautiful building is now done with a beautiful roastery inside. That's and amazing. It's lines outside all the time. I've got to check that out next time. Unless I'm in it's Chicago. a blizzard. The store is always filled. And they roast coffee there. They they show everybody how they got these big roasters and how they take the coffee and they shoot it over to the different areas. How they they got six, six different ways to grind it, seven yeah. different ways to brew it. And, um, it's really wonderful. It's much better than the New York one. Much better than the one in in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's of the six in the world. I think there's Shanghai, Tokyo, Seattle, Chicago, New York, and Milan. This is by far the most successful. Always aligned there, always filled. 
Yeah. Gordon, I'm curious, you know, having built this incredibly successful company and had this, you know, just generally successful life, right? You know, we talk about how you're still married, you know, you, you, not, you know, that hadn't had much of an effect from that standpoint on your personal life and all this stuff. What is something that, you know, if you could boil it down to like a very big, big learning that you have realized over the years, having done all this, and it could be business related, it could be life related. I'm, I'm generally speaking like life wise, what would you say it is like? What is something that you've you've picked up along the way that you can maybe share with people listening that they might not realize just yet? Well, to build a business, <laughs> my grandson's dating a wonderful young lady, and uh, she's studying for a doctorate at the University of Chicago. He's studying law at Northwestern. We had this debate the other day at our, at our house up in the country, and about capitalism and. Uh, He's a little bit to the left of Karl Marx, but but anyway, <laughs> wonderful lady, you know, and that's where you should be, you know, that's wonderful. Aren't they all these days? Aren't I they all? Love, I love her dearly, but we, and I was explaining how hard you got to work to build something, to build a company. And, you know, I worked, you know, to the detriment somewhat of my family. I never played golf. I, I played a little tennis on weekends because it was an hour, not four or five hours. I worked six days a week at night after dinner and reading to, to the kids or something. I'd go to my desk and I'd do paperwork, import paperwork, pricing paperwork. I mean, I literally would work 10 hours a day in the business and another couple hours at night, five days a week and work in the stores the sixth day. So it takes an enormous amount of energy, your commitment, and probably more important, you got to have a personality that relishes other people and creating an emotional attachment to the business. And that's what we did. I mean, people worked for us for much less money than they could have made elsewhere because they loved what we were doing. And we had this mission. How do we bring tasteful, good design to American homes? And, you know, if you look at European homes, they're very tasteful. They don't have as much in them. But they're usually smaller, but everything in, you know, it's very tasteful, very well selected, very well done. And we were the editors of the home. We brought tasteful, good design product to the home, whether it was a, a glass or a dinnerware set or, you know, a simple garlic press or whether you were buying a beautiful table and chairs and, or a beautiful sofa. We were bringing beautiful product at fair pricing, not cheap, but not expensive. Always easy to... Uh, find beautiful things that are expensive. It's hard to find beautiful things that are uh, affordable. Mm. And I used to say to my people, just remember, you're the consumer's buying agent. You're not the factory's selling agent. And a lot of buyers get caught up in relationships with certain favorite factories and don't negotiate hard for the best price. And they forget who they're working for, the customer. And we said, look, if you're a buyer, Crate and Barrel, you got to be very nice to our vendors. You got to be very honest, very open. And you've got to never place an order and cancel it and stick them with the inventory. We were always the nicest store group to shop in Europe or in America. Vendors loved us. They loved doing business with us. They loved our people. They'd bring us platters of food when they came in at Christmas time from New York. And, you know, they'd go to Zabar's and bring <laughs> a whole lunch for the whole staff, just about buying staff. And they would just, they just love doing business with us because not that we were easy pushovers, but they thought we were honest. They thought we were hardworking and 
we imbued them with the mission and they started to understand what kind of product, what kind of quality, you know, that we had to have to build this business. And those relationships, we had great relationships with our furniture vendors, with our glass factories, with our, as we went to Asia, we developed great relationships that we were only in Asia the last decade or so. We were mostly, you know, the first 40, 50 is mostly Europe, you know, but, you know, obviously as uh, Asia became more capable, I mean, we were always in a little bit in Japan and that group because they make beautiful ceramic ware. But then we got to Indonesia where they did beautiful teak wear, teak furniture. And we got to Malaysia. We got to Vietnam eventually. Well, we were first in in Thailand making wonderful wood. And then we we were in then we went to China. We were I was <laughs> I and a couple other people, we were the first retailers in in the um um in Guangdong province, we were at the, um, what was the Canton in 1975. Mao was still alive. He didn't die to 78. We went into China from Hong Kong, myself and uh, another friend who owned a store and a, an agent that we knew from San Francisco, a lady who had access. And we got government access, but not as Crate and Barrel. We were as Euro Market Designs. We were an importer, is what, how we presented ourselves. And we went to China in those early days. We spent a week at the Canton Fair in 75. It was such a backward place. And it was poverty was so bad. As we, we, there were a few taxi cabs. It took us a day to go from Hong Kong to Canton. Now it takes you an hour. Hmm. It was a whole day. You had to take the bridge up through the, the Northern Territories, carry your bags across a bridge, go through a detention center for four hours, get on a train for two hours get off and find a cab and stay in the old Tung Hotel. I got to tell you, we didn't drink uh, any water for a week. We were For breakfast, we'd have orange soda, and for dinner, we'd have beer. And um, it, was, it was such a backward place. People would, young Chinese kids would run up to, when our car came to a stop sign or stop, there weren't many stoplights, there weren't many cars. It was, you know, come to a stop. Little kids would run up, put their faces against the windows and, Look at us like, oh, my God, look at all these round-eyed people. I mean, you, we were back in the 18th century. It was, it was incredible. And as much as I'm not happy with China today because of their politics and aggressiveness, what the, the, what the progress that has been made in the last 45, 50 years in China has been incredible uh, and brought a billion people out of absolute backwardness and poverty. So, you know, Gordon, Gordon, you know, you've had an incredible story, an incredible journey. And, you know, we're so thankful that you're sharing it with us here today. And I know folks can't see you, but you look like you still have a great taste and that you're a stylish guy. Even now, I think I might have seen a peak of your watch. I'm curious as to what watch you're wearing, because I know me and Pat are big watch guys. This, this, this is a watch called 40 F.O. And it's forty nine dollars. Wow. It's a, a watch made. I forgot where it's made. It's made in Japan, I think. Okay. It's got a red band. It comes, I, there was an ad in the New York Times magazine <laughs> a couple months ago. It's made in, I'm looking at it, made in uh, Japan. Okay. And it's a, a encased watch, and the body is plastic. Uh, the, the bands are different colors. And what's more important is that the hands, one's red, one's blue, and one's yellow. The second hand is yellow, and the minutes are red, and the hours are blue. 
and it's everybody comments about it. And I think the watch costs forty nine dollars. I love now, it. I think they're fifty nine dollars, but it's called forty. I know. I saw that red band, and I was like, I got to ask him what he's wearing. Yeah, yeah. So I've got expensive watches. I never wear them. <laughs> wearing my forty nine dollar watch. Are you are you a watch collector? No, no. I just have, you know, over the years, I've I've Jensen's designed. George Jensen made beautiful watches and have some of those and some gifts I got over the years, but I'm not a, a fancy watch guy. I much prefer this $49 watch. I like it. Well, <laughs> you know, it's my wife and I, it's funny, you know, you were talking about how, you know, you guys started uh crate and barrel for the young couple and uh, folks that really didn't necessarily have much money, but they wanted a good design. And, you know, I'll say now, like in our house, a lot of the products that we have are from CB2 and crate and barrel. So, right. Um, you know, and I think a lot of our friends uh, and family are kind of in that same boat. So we love seeing the continued success of the company that you've built. And, you know, as podcasters who are interviewing founders, it's incredible to see brands that have gone on for 60 plus years and the people behind them uh, like yourself. And it's, it's not it's no surprise to us that when we hear your story, that we can see why Crate and Barrel has been a success. So. I hope that those that are listening can take some inspiration and draw inspiration from you and your story and go out and build incredible things uh, out there as well. Well, what's what I feel very proud about is we were always very honest and open with our staff and our customers. We were always, we expected people to work hard, but we were very loyal, never fired anyone unless there was absolute incompetence or absolute uh, uh, lack of hard work. You had to work hard. You had to be there on time and, you know, be there responsible for whatever your responsibilities were. But we, you know, we developed a culture which really had a mission and the mission was to figure out a way, to, whether you're buying or running the distribution centers or you're on the sales floor, that you really felt devoted to the customer to bring them this product in the best possible way and get it to them at the best possible price. And uh, right now, there's a that crate and barrel after Barbara retired went through two or three CEOs that really didn't know what they were doing, didn't have the same cultural thought process, and it was quite difficult. But in the last two years, they've brought aboard a wonderful lady who really is reinvigorating the company. And business has been terrific, and you know the company is healthy and well, and got a good partner and. Uh, you know, it's doing well. It's doing well on the internet. It's doing well again in the stores. Since, well, it was. I don't know what the last couple of months have been with COVID coming back. But after COVID broke, you know, and everybody started getting vaccines, business came back in the stores pretty damn good in the yeah. summer and uh, fall of this year and the Christmas season. And, and the internet business has been terrific. So, and for most cases, we're still doing what we started out to do some 60 years ago. And, um, you know, it was, it was such an adventure. It was so much fun. Looking back, or many days you were aggravated, or many days when you were disappointed in something or someone. But for the most part, you know, we had wonderful people. We still, for all the people who have retired or left the company, every year my wife and I sponsor a Life After Crate event at a restaurant near here and we have a private room and we gather a hundred 120 of executives and everybody's friends and everybody sees old co-workers and 
Uh, obviously, most of them are from the Chicago area, but we have people coming from California, people coming from New York and Boston, and they come from all over the country just to be together with their fellow uh, workers who help build the company. And so we still have these wonderful evening events and, you know, uh, where everybody, you know, so excited, where everyone's just doing what's going on with their families. Crane was like one big family. Everybody knew everybody else's personal lives, you know, their, their, their husband's issues or their, their, their kids problems, or, I mean, literally it was like a family and people consequently were very loyal to the, the company and the idea of the company. And, and we, we, made it that way we made it so it would feel like it was a very special kind of place to work and and it i think that's back in the spirit the stores look better than ever the product is really well edited now uh, i'm very very happy with uh the, the lady who's now running crate and barrel and we meet every two three months for lunch and she's very proud of you know what's going on and so am i Amazing. Well, thanks again, Gordon, for hanging out and sharing this and looking forward to keeping in touch. And, uh, you know, hopefully at some point we can meet in person someday. But this has been incredible. Uh, thank you. You're welcome. Gentlemen, I'm, I'm pleased to have done this tonight. We need, we need we need to keep a record of what happened. And this was a good way of creating history. <laughs> Absolutely. That's Absolutely. why we do this. Thank you, Gordon. Have a great rest of the night. Thank you very much, guys. Take care.